This episode is brought to you in partnership with Write Mentor. If you're a children's writer, you've probably heard of Write Mentor. And if not, do I have a treat for you? Write Mentor is a group of authors and friends who've built a supportive system for fellow storytellers from picture books up to young adult that delivers mentoring programs, courses and conferences and much, much more. Write Mentor has a range of services, but if you stick around until the end of the episode, you can find out how to get an entire month of their premium subscription, the Write Mentor Hub, for free. So I will see you at the end. Now, let's get back to the episode. So our podcast is called Right and Wrong. Are these your notes? These these your notes about what we're going to say? Anything. It's a short answer. (laughs) So how many novels did you not finish? Oh my God, so many. (laughs) It was perfect. What are you talking about? This is nonsense. Ooh, a spicy question. I love it. (laughs) This is it, guys. The big secret to getting published is you have to write a good book. (laughs) You heard it here first. We're going (laughs) to... Hello, and welcome back to the Right and Wrong podcast. Today, I'm very excited to have the award-winning, best-selling children and young adult author, Laura Wood. Hi, Laura. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for coming on. We've had, I mean, no one listening will know this, but we've had a lot of technical difficulties and we finally made it. So I'm very excited to finally be chatting with you, Laura. Let's start things off with... The, the exciting new thing, your latest novel, The Agency of Scandal, which is out January 5th. What's it all about? Well, it's about a, a group of sort of vigilante lady detectives in the late 19th century who are roaming about writing wrongs for women under the radar. Um, and specifically, it's about a young woman who works for them who's keeping a lot of secrets from the society that she moves in. And when her latest case uh, involves her sort of long-time secret crush, uh, (laughs) things get quite complicated quite quickly. Um, And it's really, it's just a really fun, tropey kind of caper I guess there's a jewel heist there's lots of running around all over the country there's villains it's it's very good fun I think <laughs> it is it is very good fun very exciting and uh obviously uh romance as well period romance yeah that's a big thing for me that's my favorite so yes <laughs> <laughs> and I I noticed whilst I was uh looking you up that you actually have a PhD in 19th century literature. Yes, that's was that was that. What is it about this period that that really draws you in? Um, Well, it's funny because the first, my first YA uh, historical novels, the first three of them are all set in sort of the late 1920s, early 1930s. Yeah, Um, and that was so much fun to write about. And I think in the back of my mind. (laughs) Because I do have this interest in Victorian literature um, and and Victorian history, that that sort of Victorian world, I, I suppose I sort of knew that I would end up there <laughs> in the end. Um, but I, I think it's really such an interesting period because it, it's the first time I think that you see the accelerated level of change that we now accept as being sort of normal in terms of um, technology, in terms of industry, but also in terms of, um, you know, 
culturally and socially, the way that people are thinking um, for women, things are really changing in that period. Um, I mean, slowly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, But, you know, that's where things start to get really interesting for me. So um, I was just always felt like there was a real natural point for me because I like to write these kind of coming of age stories about young women it's such a rich setting for that I think yes and you mentioned technology uh, and the sort of changing of technology I have to ask this as this is a sort of mystery scandal um heist affair as you mentioned does it help setting a story like this in a time before mobile phones and the internet? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> certainly it helps with quite a lot of tension because you can't just immediately clear something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, in terms of pacing, definitely it helps when you don't have to deal with those things. And I also think that it's, it is really hard writing contemporary fiction because you're you're dating yourself so immediately because things change so quickly and the process of writing a book can be quite long even in the time between you writing the book and the book being published things can change so much um so you know in that sense it's it does make things easier yeah no that's so true i mean a great example was i know that having spoken to a few agents through kind of lockdown and and the global pandemic is that they said that that there was an inundation of people writing stories about lockdowns and pandemics. And they, and at a certain point it's like, everyone's so sick of this that no one wants, because we're living it, that no one wants to to read it. And the turnaround time for publishing, as you say, is long. So by the time you've written it. Yeah. And I was having exactly this conversation with my publicist, Harriet yesterday. She was saying, that they got some feedback on a novel that was set in 2020 um, about how it was, you know, unrealistic because it didn't mention COVID. <laughs> that the book had been written in sort of 2018 or something. Yeah. So kind of like, well, I'm sorry that we weren't prescient about the <laughs> oncoming um, <laughs> pan- global pandemic happening. But yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's always the danger. It's like with uh, was it Back to the Future? Didn't the 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 future date of Back to the Future was like uh, some years ago, and and everyone was saying, "Oh, what what do Where's we have? What don't we have?" <laughs> <laughs> Where are our hoverboards? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I think one of the shoe brands actually made the shoes that they have in Back to the Future that oh that God, do themselves that. up, but. <laughs> <laughs> that's excellent but we're getting I'm, off topic I'm all for that. i think we should be <laughs> that's, let's let's look to back to the future <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah let's look at what people thought the future was going to be like yeah back then <laughs> <laughs> getting back on topic um is this your fifth or, or sixth ya novel uh this is my fifth ya novel yeah um, and I I write middle grade as well, and then I and then I also um, have done some books with Barrington Stoke, for, which is a amazing um, dyslexia friendly publisher. So yes, oh amazing, amazing. So with this novel, the agency of, Scan- of the agency for scandal, um, your previous novels are very much coming of age romance, mm-hmm. like the ones you mentioned set in the early nineteen hundreds. Uh, did you feel like with this one you lent more heavily into the mystery sort of caper side of things 
Yeah, I think definitely. So um, the the book that I wrote before this, A Single Thread of Moonlight, which is the first one that's set in this time period, is set in 1899. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) This is where it gets confusing, which is two years after this book is set in 1897. Um, So, but... When I wrote that book, um, it became it had a much stronger mystery element to it, um, and I don't know if that's partly, um, you know, a natural thing where having written three sort of romantic coming of age stories, I wanted something a little bit different. I also don't know if it's because in my mind that Victorian period lends itself so well to to a sort of uh, detective-y crime yeah. um, feeling. You know, I absolutely love Enola Holmes, for example, that's just come <laughs> yeah. um, out. I mean, and the books, of course, but I I love that feeling of uh, um, of sort of Victorian, Sherlock Holmes-y, foggy London <laughs> crime. Mm, yeah, yeah. So that was certainly there as well. Um but yeah, with the fair, with um, a single thread of moonlight, I think I got a taste for that and enjoyed it so much that then it became a, an even bigger focus in this most recent book. Okay, okay. So it could be that the the book and the kind of characters just sort of grew into this, or it could be that you wanted to your natural evolution as a writer, I guess, where you you know you've done a lot of romance, you wanted to reach out and try some more things. Yeah, absolutely. But also, I think what's really interesting to me about writing The Agency for Scandal was that it changed itself as I was writing it. Um, because when I started it, the the kind of vague idea I had in my head was uh, all-female detective agency. Um, and then as I was writing the book, it became something slightly different, which is that it is an all-female detective agency, but it's a secret one that works exclusively for women um, and that specialises in kind of digging up dirt on powerful men to sort of liberate or aid or... Um, help in some way the women in their lives so it became something else uh it isn't the straightforward uh, you know at first I was thinking it's a detective agency it's going to be a shop people can go in and talk to the detective and you know book them for a case and it in that very traditional format and it was when I I was writing it it started to turn into this thing that was sort of underground and secret um and that that engaged with a specific kind of um I keep saying there's this this sort of thin thread of anger and rage <laughs> that runs this very light, you know, rompy book. Yeah. Um, but it's absolutely there and I I really love that about it. Oh, okay. That's really interesting. It's always interesting to to hear because often a, an initial idea that the inception of a of a book is very simple and it's interesting to see how that grows and develops and changes to to what becomes the final product in the end yeah yeah and as you mentioned you also do um middle grade books with the you've got the poppy pym series and the effie costas series to highlight for you as a writer is it difficult 
to sort of, do you have to sort of embody a different mentality when you're moving between MG and YA? Because there's a lot between those age ranges. Yeah, yeah, you do. Um, and I I think it's really fun. It's a really fun thing to do. And it's a really, really interesting thing to do both because you are, you do become more aware of those differences. So I would say, for example, if I'm writing a middle grade book, my emphasis then is on uh, plot. Uh, and I would think, I would be thinking structurally about writing short chapters and I would want each chapter to have its own momentum that builds to a kind of climax. So that's yeah. quite uh, difficult in some ways to structure a book like that. But you want, because in my mind, I think a middle grade reader is more likely to be reading this in shorter bursts or um, to be reading it in a classroom or to be reading it and and you want it to keep their attention. So I like to have as much as possible each chapter end on a bit of a cliffhanger or like what's going to happen next feeling. Um, whereas with the YA books, especially because I think the YA that I write is at the top end of YA age-wise, you know, um, it's about sort of 18, 19-year-olds. Um there's a lot more space for reflection in that. There's a lot more um, space for uh, a bigger and more complex emotional arcs. Yeah. Um, there's a lot more space for description um, in terms of the, you know, the world building. In a middle grade book, <laughs> the, the really great middle grade writers it will will manage to build an entire very vivid bright word world um without taking up much space on the page yeah, yeah um and i always think that's one of the things that's so interesting about if you're an adult and you go back to books that you loved when you were very young is it's always so startling how simple they are because in your mind when you read them as a child they were so it, there was so much detail but that's because the writer is allowing and making space for an incredibly vivid young child imagination. Yes, exactly. They're just sort of laying the the groundwork for you to then create all the extra details yourself. Absolutely. That's what I think. So there is a real difference in both in structure and in tone, I think, in the writing of the two different ones. Yeah, no, 100%. And I think, I don't, do, do you think that there's more room with something like YA to have more sort of moral ambiguity, to have almost uh, the villains a lot of the time in, in YA can be more um, sort of uh, respectable in a way or like uh, relatable, yeah. I guess is the word I'm looking for. Whereas in MG, it feels like there's almost a sort of precedent where you need to have very clear cut this is the bad guy, this is the good guy. Yeah, I do think that. I th I mean, I think it's that's that, that's such an interesting question and I think it's a it's actually a really complicated answer, isn't it? Because I think what you say is absolutely true um that in middle grade there is definitely a, a much more clear cut here is the good person and here is the villain. Yeah. Um and 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 in some ways, I think that is a bit of a hangover from, 
you know, one of the reasons that I was so interested in the Victorian period academically was because that's really where you see the birth of children's literature as we understand it, because suddenly children can read um, and book and books are so much more accessible. Um, and so, you know, there's this real golden age of children's literature during that time. But actually, and I mean, a lot of these books haven't survived for this for that reason so much of that material was really explicitly moralistic and yeah. really interested in um how to be a good child <laughs> um, so i think that actually there is still a slight hangover from that even in our middle grade today um but it's also which is difficult because you're also balancing it against the fact that as a children's writer, you do have a responsibility. <laughs> you know, yeah. you are, reading is so intimate. You are getting in someone's head. Um, you do have, I think, um, you know, a responsibility to model, um, you know, what <laughs> the kind of values, I suppose, that you would want a child to see and understand and appreciate but I think in a way that extends into YA even if it's even if it's less much less uh, overt I think especially if you're writing romance for me one of the big things about writing YA romance is um, <laughs> I think we have a reputation from the early days of YA, as we understand it, um, of modelling really <laughs> toxic, bad <laughs> relationships. Mm, like love uh, triangles. <laughs> not, not naming any names or anything. <laughs> but, um, you know, and so so I always feel when I'm writing a, a romance novel that I have to make, a, write a romance that's convincing, that's, that is romantic, that is something that someone wants to read and swoon over and have loads of feelings about. But I also want it to be um, the sort of relationship that I would want to be in or I would want my friends or I would want my family to be in where there's, you know, respect and communication and all those things that don't sound super yeah. easy. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, yeah. you really are. Um and, you know, I think that's something that people think about a lot more now as well in terms of, um, and I've noticed this trend in adult romance as well, that there's a real interest in like consent and making sure that that's incorporated in a really explicit way. Yeah. Um, so I think there are, you know, like you say, it is different, but it, there is still, I think, there's a sense of responsibility with whoever you're writing for, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. And you don't want to be promoting, as you say, sort of toxic behaviours or, or toxic relationships, like um, someone dating an immortal being hundreds of years older than them, for, for example, example. who controls, he's very controlling. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, even like I always seem to end up having these little rants and in um, the agency for scandal, there is a, a small one of them. <laughs> cut down so dramatically which is where i start going off on my anti-heathcliff okay <laughs> um, and that was quite lengthy <laughs> so now it's just a sort of voice but yeah. i think you know that there is 
this idea of the romantic hero as being um like a sort of brooding bad boy and i think you can still do that in a in a better way if you're interested in kind of the emotion behind that but yeah definitely definitely think there are points there where you can look a bit more deeply into it yeah yeah yeah. well that's no that's really interesting and especially from you who was obviously published in in both of those uh genres um but so speaking of mgmya for you as a writer which came first well (laughs) (laughs) um my first book was a middle grade book and it happened in a really strange way Okay. <laughs> um, which was uh, that I was working on my PhD and I I saw a, I think it was a tweet about a competition um, for middle grade books. Uh, it was a competition and you had to write the first 5,000 words, send in the first 5,000 words of a middle grade novel Um and at this point, I hadn't, I had done, like, I loved writing. I had done creative writing classes. I had, when I was younger, I had written all the time, but I hadn't written for years, like sat down and written anything except for poetry. Um, but I was working in a, a children's bookshop. <clears throat> um, I loved children's literature. I was writing about Victorian children's literature. And I had this idea for a children's book for ages years years and years but I'd been way too scared and intimidated and full of self-doubt to write a thing literally a single word of it down on paper yeah so when I saw this thing and it said the first 5,000 words it for me that was like oh well I could I could do that because that's not writing a whole book that's writing 5,000 words and I could do that so I wrote the first 5,000 words of this book and it, and I really nearly didn't send it in, which is, you know, not very often you get to see your own sort of sliding doors moments, but mm. this was my, <laughs> I really was like, oh, you know, it's, so, it's just something so silly, like it's not any good, I shouldn't send it. But I did send it in and then... I sometime later I got contacted and they said, Oh, we we loved it and we want to put you on the shortlist of five. But in order to go on the shortlist, you have to have like a full manuscript. So do you have one? And I said, Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, thank you. Um, when when will you need just because I need to, you know, polish <laughs> where we need and they said, Oh, we need it in two weeks. So I wrote the 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 full draft of. Oh my god! (laughs) I mean, it was. I was like an ant. Like I did not leave the house. I did not (laughs) wash. I did nothing but write the book. Um, and then it won. Oh my god! (laughs) I know. And and the prize for winning was that the book would be published by Scholastic, but also that you would get agency representation and so I I my agent Louise who is my dear friend and who I who you know I hope I like to think we would have ended up together anyway <laughs> I won her in a competition oh okay <laughs> which is very weird yeah dynamic 
So the reason, sorry, to go back to your original question, the first book that I wrote was a middle grade book, but when, before this first book came out, Poppy Pimp, I had a meeting with Louise and I said to her so tentatively, oh, I am... I do have another idea for a book, but I I don't know. Should I tell you about that? She was kind of like, "Yes, Laura, that's how this is. <laughs> like, you have to tell me the idea, <laughs> then that's how the books get made." And I was like, "Oh, okay." And so that that was a sky painted gold. Okay. Um. So so we and as soon as i talked to her about it she just lit up she took that to scholastic and they bought it off the outline they, wow yeah it was amazing i was so it was so lovely to feel that people just really responded to that idea um so immediately um and so in a, in a in a way like i was kind of doing both at the same time at the beginning but the the I don't even know which one came first because the YA idea had been there for years and the middle grade idea had been there for years. And oh, okay. Yeah, so it was a it was a strange path to publication. Yeah, because <laughs> I was going to ask, I know that publishers like to sort of create a brand around an author. So I was going to ask if, you, if, if it required some convincing for w- when, you, no. when you turned around and said, I want to do yeah. YA. <laughs> I mean, I think in hindsight, because I was so ignorant as well, going into <laughs> it, I had no idea, you know, how anything worked. And I was just like, oh, this is lovely. This is so nice that everyone just, that they're just, and I didn't really think about that at the time. I mean, how amazing is Scholastic to, yeah. and, and there was never any com- conversation about, for example, was only later on that I thought, I wonder if we should have like done them under different, you know, like Laura Wood and Elwood or, you know, or something. Yeah. Um, but there was never any conversation about that. They were always so comfortable with having me in on both sides of it. Um and and it so it was just such a lovely experience and that's how it all ended up happening. Well that's amazing. I mean Yeah. <laughs> so so uh, yeah, I mean coming up to uh, almost a decade now that you've been sort of publishing books in the industry yeah. and you've had same agent, same publisher the whole time. Yeah. Same editor? Different editors for MG and well, um, Mostly the same. So at the beginning, I've had um, three editors at Scholastic, well, four, but the, that part of it is because they all kept going off on maternity leave. Oh, okay. They all, what they would all cover each other. Luckily, their maternity leaves didn't overlap. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, but for the most part, the same. Um, and then I ended up kind of when when my editor Jen came back from maternity leave, I sort of somehow ended up keeping my editor Sophie as well. So for some of them, I had two editors oh wow yeah which was amazing and and we had it all down to the the process of writing has changed so much for me now and and the last few books have been a dream so easy to write because what I'll do now is write an incredibly detailed outline yeah and then I will take it to we have like a, a a meeting um, with Louise, my agent, Sophie and um, Jan, my editors at Scholastic. 
And I say, here's the outline. And then we talk about it. Then we talk about, so I, so I haven't had to do a big structural edit on, I would say the last three books at all, because we work out completely the structure beforehand. Um, and it makes writing it so much easier, but it's so funny that you, that that's where I've, how I've ended up writing and that I've ended up with this system because at the start I didn't know what I mean no one no one teaches you how to write a book no exactly um, and also there's no one way of doing yeah. it everyone approaches it in different ways exactly so it was such a strange thing to have to work out to to think okay well so this is my job now this is what I'm gonna do but I don't know how to do it. And there's no, as you say, there's no what there's no kind of guide that I can follow. So you just have to muddle through until you find what works for you, which is such a scary feeling, but ultimately also quite good fun. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, hundred percent. When you say a detailed outline, are we talking a thousand words, five thousand words, ten thousand words. Um, it's usually around five thousand, I guess. Okay, okay, um, that's interesting. Yeah, and then I write in um, Scrivener. Um, oh yeah, which I love and which I recommend to everyone. That that was massively helpful for me. And what I will usually do then is literally copy and pe- cut the chop the outline up and copy and paste into each sort of chapter description the bit of the outline that I need to write. Right, okay, yeah. And so then I'll write to that. Um, And it just just helps. I think for me, the um, everything that I do, I'm sort of realising this as I'm talking, (laughs) everything I do is about avoiding a blank page. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Because that's the thing that, scares me the most yeah um and i know some writers love their favorite bit of it is the first draft and the absolute freedom and all of that stuff and but that's the worst part for me every single time the first draft is torture absolute torture for me Mm. um because i i think i when it's when it's blank and there's nothing for me to work with I feel like that's when all the self-doubt has space yeah, to treat yeah. it in. Yeah, I think that's going to be a very familiar feeling for, for a lot of people <laughs> listening. <laughs> Amazing. Well, that brings us on to um, the final question, which is, as always, Laura, if you were stranded on a desert island with a single book, which book would you take? You know, this is the cruelest question. Um, yes, yes, yes. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> yes, well. Um, well, I mean, I've been thinking about this for days and I still do, and I still think the answer changes sort of hourly. I'm going to say Eva Ibbotson and I'm going to say oh, A Company of Swans. Okay. Um, because that book is my friend. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I feel like, for me, I'm such a huge comfort reader. I love rereading. I would say 50% of my reading is rereading. Um, and Eva Ibbotson, for me, is the ultimate comfort read. 
And that's what it feels like when I read those books. I feel I feel like I'm spending time with a friend. I feel like I'm being looked after um, and very gently taken care of. Um, and I think if I was on a desert island <laughs> alone, <laughs> that would be what I would need. So, Companionship. Yeah. yeah that's that's mm. such a beautiful way of describing a, a book. I've not really thought about it in terms of, of a book that I would consider a friend before, but that's so lovely. What a nice thought. Yeah, well, she's. She, I think, to be honest, I think she's a very special writer because yeah. I think the the warmth that she writes with is is what you know puts the magic in those books so yeah that's the that she's when i think about that 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 friendly feeling she's the first writer i think of for sure amazing well thank you so much laura for coming on the podcast um telling us all about your journey as a writer and uh the new book the agency for scandal which is out january 5th <laughs> <laughs> it's been such a pleasure chatting with you and uh, and meeting you Oh, thank you so much. It's been a real joy. I've had such a nice time. <laughs> and for anyone listening, if you want to keep up with what Laura is doing, you can follow her on Twitter at Laura Claire Wood or on Instagram at Laura C. Wood uh, or head over to her website, Laura, lauraclairewood.com. And to make sure you don't miss an episode of this podcast, follow us on Twitter at Right and Wrong UK or on Instagram and TikTok at Right and Wrong Podcast. Thanks again to Laura and thanks to everyone listening. We'll catch you on the next episode. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.